discuss the midway point, the official and unofficial midway points of the 2018 Major League and Minor League seasons. Uh, it's kind of crazy. This was the latest All-Star game, I think, like in history, and now it's behind us. And now there are not even two weeks until the trade deadline, and everything's all out of whack this month, Sam Dykstra. <laughs> I know. All, all of our calendars are just off. Like, we don't know exactly where we are in the, in the season anymore. Somebody mentioned to me the other day we might be talking about short season, first half clinchings here coming up. Oh, man, which, yeah. Yeah, that just completely came up out of nowhere. Madness. Uh, which, which we can have that discussion another day. Short season league should not be having first half, second half championships. But yeah. anyway. Yeah, if, I would agree. If they are going to do them, they're coming up quickly, and that's always a sign that the, uh, you know, the, I think as of today, the AAA All-Star game is two months away. For next year? You, the 2019 for, Yeah, the 2019 <laughs> one, yeah. The way this, this season is going, yes, the 2019. Yeah, we're, uh, yeah, we're closing in on the, uh, the 2019 postseason is what it feels like at this stage um but yeah we are uh well what's so weird too as we welcome you into this week's episode of the show before the show podcast i'm tyler mon sam dykstra is in new york city uh the all-star break being pushed back so far doing part two and we got a question about this actually uh the major league all-star break and the triple a all-star break used to kind of coincide and triple a all-star game would be on like a tuesday for example major league all-star game would be on a wednesday um but this year triple a all-star game was last week major league all-star game this week and opening day was so early in march for the major leagues and then the all-star game is pushed back due in large part to the world cup because fox owned the tv rights for both of those coincidentally that's how things work out uh when you're monetizing tv rights um but so i mean you hear all of these records of oh this guy just set the mark for most rbis by this position before the all-star break or this team has the most wins before the all-star break or whatever yeah because they're playing like 10 more games than most any other season before the all-star break it's just a a strange calendar season and it's not the same in that you get out of the all-star break and now you have basically three weeks or more to evaluate whether you're going to be buyers or sellers before the trade deadline and as we heard last night during the all-star game i mean ken rosenthal immediately after manny machado leaves the game coincidentally enough gets to go to manny machado and say here's what we're hearing about you going to los angeles dodgers um this stuff kicks into extremely high gear now because we're 13 days away we're recording this on wednesday the 18th yeah yeah we'll, we'll get more into this you know later in three strikes but um you know manny machado is the big guy on the market right now we don't have any confirmed reports about you know him going officially to the dodgers that seems to be the number one destination everybody's talking about right now uh using diaz we'll talk about it in a little bit seems to be the guy who would be going back but you know the orioles kind of have a history of deals getting very close getting to the five yard line and then just completely dissipating because of you know medical records or they see something else that they don't like and all that so we won't get into exactly what's you know, being offered or as of this recording right now, we can't talk about who is going back to the Orioles in a Manny Machado trade uh, until anything's confirmed. So you'll probably have to tune in next week. But uh, yeah, it was so weird to to see Manny Machado take a selfie with Matt Kemp at second base and us all get flustered about what that means on the, the trade market just because it is so close. Maybe it just means they wanted to take a picture together. Nobody seemed to offer that as an explanation. <laughs> Matt Kemp I know, said, uh, I don't know what you're talking about <laughs> to Joe Buck and John Smoltz. We've just been friends for a long time. Yeah, it, it's you know almost I mean? like the older generation doesn't understand selfies and that they have to mean something. 
<laughs> bizarre, bizarre as that yeah. is. The older generation not understanding something about the current generation of baseball. Uh, but anyway, with that, we welcome you into this week's episode, the 169th episode of the Show Before the Show podcast. Nice. Three strikes coming up. Futures game recap. Sam Dykstra was there at the Futures game on Sunday as the world's best and the best from the United States took part in what ended up as kind of a preview of Tuesday's Major League All-Star game and that there were home runs galore. Eight homers in the 2018 MLB All-Star Futures game. Four on each side. The U.S. with a 10-6 victory over the world team. Uh, Taylor Trammell, Cincinnati Reds' number three prospect. He picks up MVP honors, hit a home run, hit a triple in his two at-bats, came into the game in the fifth inning and earns the MVP there. Um, But a a really fun game. I mean, a game if you are somebody who enjoys exit velocity, somebody who enjoys pitching velocity, uh, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, I mean, did kind of give you that feel of baseball in 2018. A lot of home runs, some strikeouts, um, the the way the game is played nowadays, which, newsflash, is not a bad way for the game to be played, but neither here nor there. Sam, give us your reaction on uh, what stood out from this week's uh, or this season's futures game. Yeah, so we always talk about the futures game as being a showcase. Basically, that's that's what it is. Uh, I know some people like to watch batting practice, especially you know prospect hounds and uh, prospect writers who are in to evaluate guys. You know, you want to see how they're going to do in a in a controlled environment like like that, and when they can really show off their power and they're not going up against 95, 98 mile an hour fastballs, but the game itself this year was a perfectly good showcase for some of these ga- these guys' talents and, and what they can be, you know, when they are going 100% and when they are, uh, you know, throwing as hard as they can, swinging as hard as they can, uh, trying to show off a little bit. You know, Taylor Trammell said, you know, you mentioned he hit a home run and he hit a triple. Uh, that second hit he had he came in in the middle of the game uh he thought it was gone it, it went out deep center about as far as it, as it could have and uh he started to trot around the bases and flew up a two sign to the u.s dugout saying that's my second homer i'm gonna enjoy this a little bit uh then realizing that wasn't gone and <laughs> you know he's fast enough he's athletic enough he made it to third base no problem uh not a huge deal you know even if he was sprinting out of the box probably wasn't gonna be an inside the park home run but he said like listen i'm gonna get some stuff from my parents, from my brother later for that. You know, the, I, I always try 100%, but I'm going to have my TV time too. Uh, and it, it felt like those guys, you know, I talked to a couple of them before the game and everybody said, you know, you just got to treat it like a regular game. Didn't quite look like that was happening. I think guys were really having a lot of fun and, and really trying to show themselves off. Uh, so Trammell was definitely somebody who, you know, coming into the game, he's had a solid year at Class A Advanced Daytona. Uh, certainly through his first two seasons or two flirt two first full seasons in the red system has built himself into kind of an all-around talent we've had him on the podcast before um just really does everything well and has tons of speed to burn uh but showed a good amount of power both in bp and actually in the game and that makes you start to question him a little bit you know what could this guy really be going forward uh he's not really been a home run hitter so far this season but he's also playing in the you know class a advanced florida state league what happens when he gets out of the pitchers parks that are in florida i'll be really excited to see that uh kind of staying in that same red system uh you know hunter green who i had a, a story about before the game uh both hunter green and joe adele in the angels system both competed in the high school home run derby that is held before the Futures game. Uh, They did that in 2016 in San Diego. And Joe Adele said, I remember going to that game and thinking, 
man, we're really far away from actually being able to participate in this. Uh, the guys who are in the Futures game are so far ahead of us. Two years later, both of them were participants and were two of the toolsiest prospects there. Uh, but just to go back to Green, Green threw 19 fastballs in the game, all of which were measured, according to StatCast, at being over 100 miles an hour. It was... That's incredible. absolute gas. And, you know, talking to players after the game, Tyler, you mentioned the eight home runs. That's a futures game record. The old record was four home runs. So this is double the amount of home runs we had previously seen in, in a futures game. Nobody homered in last year's game in Miami. Uh, you know, I asked, like, what was there anything about this game that made that special, you know, that allowed this to happen? Obviously, it could just be a one off. Um, but with the way the game is kind of going right now, it's homer friendly, it's strikeout friendly, whatever. What happened here? And a, a lot of them said, listen, we're going up against guys throwing gas. They're providing the power. If we can make contact, the ball's going to go a long way. And, and that's what happened, uh, specifically with Hunter Green. Uh, you know, he topped out at 103 miles an hour. He threw one pitch to Luis Alexander Basabe from the White Sox system, uh, the starting center fielder for the world team on Sunday. It was 102.3 miles an hour coming in. It was 104.8 miles per hour going out. It was a home run. Uh, Basabe kind of also in that group with Trammell of, you know, super toolsy guy. Basabe is not a top 100 prospect yet, but to see him homer off that special kind of velocity uh, was really, really cool. So, uh, you know, just watching the game, Peter Alonzo also had a moonshot of a home run. Uh, that was absolutely nuts. It had, I think it was the highest launch angle ever hit by a home run in StatCast history. Um, or at least given the launch angle and the exit velocity, nobody has ever hit a home run that has reached both of those measures before. Uh, he said it was like lightning hit the tip of his bat when he made contact. He could feel it was something special. Uh, even he said, you know, this is my chance to kind of show off. Uh, you only, I've never played in a game like this before. I wanted to do something special, and he feels like he did. He thought it was the furthest he'd ever hit. Uh, it wasn't actually the furthest hit in the game, I don't think. Um, but still, it, it was, you know, the type of stuff we all were going gaga over in the home run derby the next night. Uh, that was the stuff happening in the Futures game. So it, it was really a lot of fun to be there, be, a lot of fun to watch it happen. And uh, hopefully you guys got to watch it too on Sunday because you, you really missed a good one if, if you didn't get a chance to see it. Well, you talked about some of the guys uh, who made an impression on you. Um, strike two, we were going to discuss who do you think bumped their stock uh, most on Sunday? Fernando Tatis Jr. goes out and gets a couple of hits. Um, a guy who we, it sounds like, may be talking about a lot here in the coming days and weeks. Using Neil Diaz goes out and gets a couple of hits. There are only three players on that world roster that had multiple hits on the day. Um, over on the other side for the United States, Taylor Trammell, we noted. Uh, Alex Kirilov goes out and gets two hits himself. Um, what does the, the stock rise? the highest stock rise look like among players in this game? Who did it belong to? Yeah, I think it belonged to Usnail Diaz, uh, which is interesting because he, like I said before, he is being paired now with that potential Manny Machado to the or to the Dodgers trade. Uh, he seems to be the guy that everybody has circled as the headliner going the other way. Um, I don't know if that's really going to correlate in terms of, you know, just because he did well on Sunday, it, he's automatically going to be the next head liner in the, the big blockbuster trade of the summer. Uh, but at the same time, you know, he was the first 
Futures Gamer to homer twice in the Futures game since Alfonso Soriano in 1999 at Fenway Park. And that was the first Futures game. So it's very rare to see, you know, guys homer twice in this game. He was the only one to do so. Definitely seemed in line to take the MVP award until, you know, Trammell won it because the the U.S. won it, and that's how we give out MVPs. But uh, Diaz, you know, he's been a strong hitter this year at Double A Tulsa. He's hitting three fourteen, four twenty eight, four seventy seven. Only hitting six home runs on the season. So you know, everything I've seen about him and heard about him is that the power will probably eventually come. Um, but to see him put it together that well against you know some really strong arms is really impressive and definitely a big point in his favor um kind of going the same way cabrian hayes also hit a home run in the game uh i wrote about him for a tool shed last week uh, before the futures game about how special his off or how special his defense is at third base a lot of people think he has gold glove caliber defense uh and he's already won a gold glove in the minor leagues he was a gold glove winner last year uh, for all of the minor leagues when he played at Class A, Vance Bradenton, now with Double A, Altoona. Uh, and the thing with him offensively is, well, if he can start tapping into that power, we might be having something really special here. Otherwise, he's kind of like an average third baseman with a really special glove, and that's where all the value is going to come from. Uh, so to see him homer on a big stage like that, it, it raises some eyebrows and makes us think, okay, maybe the power really will come with him as he matures, as he gets older, as he starts to fill out. Um, and, and just with Hunter Green, you know, that, that type of velocity, you're not going to ever see that. Uh, I thought Jorge Guzman from the Marlins system, formerly of the Yankees system, I thought he was going to be the guy to really light up the gun. Uh, I thought Green could potentially do it, maybe hit 100, 101, something like that. But for him to throw the 19 fastest pitches in the game That's all to crazy. himself, uh, Statcast used to have the Chapman filter. I don't know if you guys remember that. Yeah. Uh, when it, you looked up highest velocity for a year, it was all Araldus Chapman. So if you wanted to find anybody else, you had to click a button to basically eliminate Chapman. Uh, now we might have to have that with Jordan Hicks, but time might come where we're going to have to do that with Hunter Green too. Uh, just absolutely insane that he had the 19 fastest pitches in that game. Guzman had the 20th, and that was 99.7 miles per hour, which is still amazingly good uh but when you know green's hitting triple digits with every fastball he was throwing uh that opened up a lot of guys eyes especially people i talked to after the game i talked to danny jansen uh the the catcher for the u.s team who caught hunter green he caught mitch keller who was also hitting the upper 90s and i said does your hand hurt he's like i really thought it would i was really worried there for a while it doesn't but i was worried uh, and it, he said, like, you know, you want to put down the, the cheddar every time when you're going, when you're catching those guys, because it's just such special velocity. Um, and, you know, Alonzo dropped Green's name without being prompted. Uh, Trammell dropped his name without being prompted. Um, so I think a lot of these guys know, you know, they're going to have to be watching Hunter Green. He's only at Class A Dayton right now. But as he climbs the ladder, that's velocity that a lot of these guys are going to have to worry about someday. No, I think it's cool, too, is the way that people more and more every year take notice of the Futures game and what it means and what the type of talent is in the Futures game annually. I was on uh, doing an interview with a radio station in Austin, Texas yesterday, and the guys asked specifically about the Futures game and, um, you know, what it needs to, to be to be marketed better because it's such an exciting game and people have really started to tune into it and uh, have gotten excited about it. But in order to put it on the same type of footing as the Home Run Derby – 
what needs to be put out there about it. I don't know what needs to be put out there about it because I think people have really started to realize just how awesome the Futures game is every year, which is really cool because 10 years ago, I think it was more of a niche thing. But now you look at, I mean, there was the the picture that Jose Barrios put on his Instagram this week, uh, which was him, Francisco Lindor, and Javier Baez at the Futures game like five years ago, four years ago, and then yesterday, or two days ago, uh, at the Home Run Derby together, which is so neat. I mean, those guys, that's not a long track from the Futures game to being in the All-Star game, and people, I think, have started to realize just how close all of these guys, the Futures game level, are to being bona fide major leaguers and major league stars in a lot of cases, which is really neat. Yeah, and you can tell this means something to these guys, too. Um, you know, you mentioned Barrios, but the fact that it stays with them going forward. Uh, you know, th- there were a couple people, I know Tuki Toussaint said this, this was a goal of his coming into the year. I mean, people pay attention to it. The players pay attention to it. And they try to rise to the level of the Futures game. And if they're going to all be as exciting as this one, um, you know, don't you dare miss it next year. Uh, where, where is the All-Star game next year? Is it Cleveland? Cleveland. Cleveland. Uh, yeah, if you're in the Cleveland area, seriously look into to going. If you're going to go to the All-Star game, you know, I was in Washington over the weekend walking around. I wish I could count how many different types of major league shirts and, and just all across the spectrum. Um, you know, obviously, D.C. is the capital of the country and there's going to be people from all over anyways. But this is really an, an event, a weekend, a week even, that brings people all over the country together. And if you could show up, a day early, a day or two early, uh, to see the futures game and really see these guys, you're going to be surprised at what you see. Uh, I know David Ortiz said, you know, I looked up and a lot of these guys looked like major leaguers. These don't look just like young guns anymore. Uh, the product is very exciting. So check it out if you get a chance. Wrapping it up with strike three this week, uh, had the Manny Machado deal gone to official status, we were going to break that down, but um, we're still waiting on that. Undoubtedly, by the time we release this episode, it'll be horribly outdated, and that will have been confirmed to be official, because that's the way things go when you record podcasts. Um, But instead, we're going to talk about, with the deadline coming up here in the next 13 days, uh, who are some of the prospects, Sam, that you feel like could be most uh, implicated in trade deadline deals? I mean, every year it comes down to, it seems like a handful of top 100 guys, top 50 50 guys who really swing big deals at the trade deadline. Which prospects on contending clubs do you think could use a change of scenery as we get toward the deadline? Yeah, so th- this isn't necessarily guys we're hearing that are going to be traded or are on the block or anything like that, but just in terms of, uh, you know, who would we like to see traded? I mean, th- there are prospects who are in contending organizations that, you know, are naturally going to be blocked if you're contending that means you have a good roster and you're not necessarily having to bring up the kids to fill holes uh and one guy in particular came to mind when i came up with this and you know we've mentioned the dodgers being involved in trades and uh their names you know they're going to continuously come up and everybody who you know is looking to make a trade with the dodgers is going to be checking out their prospect pool uh and I haven't heard this guy's name out there at all, but I would love to see him get a chance somewhere because I do think he is major league ready. And, you know, he just continually gets not necessarily passed over for major league looks, but there just isn't the space for him right now is Alex Verdugo in the Los Angeles Dodgers uh, system. Uh, He's only 22. This is his second season at AAA. But the guy can just really hit the ball. Uh, he's hitting 350 right now with a 397 OBP, a 909 OPS, eight homers, 16 doubles. Uh, rarely strikes out. Has one of the better arms you're ever going to see in the outfield. Can really play all three spots. They've played him in left because that's where they thought they were going to have 
the biggest opening until, whoops, Matt Kemp is a National League All-Star in the year of our Lord 2018. Uh, the Dodgers thought, you know, Verdugo would maybe take Kemp's spot at some point. That hasn't happened because Kemp has actually been really good, which all due credit to him. You know, he certainly earned his spot on the All-Star team, whether he sh- should have been starting. That's a conversation for another time. But, uh, you know, the fact that the Dodgers continually churn out these guys like Kemp getting better, Max Muncie breaking out, Chris Taylor was kind of in that group before. Uh, guys like Verdugo are going to get blocked. I mean, that's just the way it goes. Um, so I would love to see Verdugo kind of get a chance to be a major league outfielder somewhere else. Now, you know, last year with you Darvish, uh, the Dodgers were involved in one of the biggest trades at the deadline, and they ended up giving up Willie Calhoun, uh, who definitely seemed surplus to requirements. Nobody knows exactly where he can play defensively. Is he a DH? That seemed to work out well for him in terms of now he's with Texas. It doesn't matter where he plays. He can eventually find a DH spot potentially with them, uh, whether he's second base, left field, whatever. Verdugo doesn't necessarily need to go to an organization like that. I think he could help almost anybody. Um, So I would like to see him get that chance. He's not a power hitter, so he he does lose some points for that. But uh, he's also basically a a consensus top 30 prospect. And the Dodgers aren't going to be willing to give that up so easily. Um, So, you know, is there a piece out there that the Dodgers could trade for where they could give up Verdugo? I don't necessarily see it. Uh, He's more likely to help them in September. I would just like to see him get regular major league at-bats because I don't know what else he has to prove after 180 career games at AAA. So that is three strikes for this week's episode number 169 of the show before the show. And uh, coming up, we're going to head to the San Francisco Giants organization right-handed pitcher Sean Anderson, a guy who was acquired in a 2017 trade and has really put a stamp on that system with double a richmond in the 2018 season uh joins the show after his promotion to the triple a sacramento river cats which uh just happened so we'll talk to sean anderson as he moves on up to the pacific coast league next San Francisco Giants organization in the Pacific Coast League is where we head next. That's where we find the seventh-ranked prospect in the Giants system, the pitcher Sean Anderson, who has just been bumped up to the AAA Sacramento Rivercaps from the AA Richmond Flying Squirrels right after being a Futures game selection. It's been a pretty boring, mundane couple of weeks for you, it sounds like. Sean, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thanks for being here, man. (laughs) Yeah, my pleasure. This is nuts. Uh, I mean, for you to go from, you know, being a, a futures game selection, the excitement that comes along with that, you're in Washington, D.C., it's All-Star Game Week, all the stuff that goes into being part of a showcase event like that, and then all of a sudden, oh, by the way, you're going up to AAA also. What has this last uh, few days been like for you? Because not many guys, you know, get either one of those experiences, and then to have them back-to-back is pretty incredible. Yeah, you know, it's been a busy week. Um I found out a couple of days before I left for uh, the Futures game that I was going to, to AAA. And uh, honestly, just been focusing on one thing to the next. So the Futures game is, is what the main event was that, that I was focusing on. And then as soon as Monday came, I, I planned to come on to Sacramento. So it's been a, been a busy week. 
you uh, told us just before we started recording, you had the option to go back to Richmond and kind of grab some of your stuff before you headed off to the West Coast. You guys are uh, in Fresno, so you get to jump right into the Sacramento-Fresno rivalry, which is pretty cool. But for, for people who are not familiar with what all this takes, just take us through the whirlwind of you're in Washington, obviously not a, a super long trip to Richmond, but to head there, hustle through packing all your stuff up. You got to get your whole life together, and then all of a sudden you're on the way out to the West Coast, and it's not that Eaton there, I would imagine, are not a whole lot of direct Richmond to Fresno flights, so I would think that travel was probably pretty exhausting too, but what were all the steps like to get from D.C. to where you are now? You know, that's kind of the behind-the-scenes thing. You know, not many fans or, or kind of people watching really know kind of what goes on when that happens, and uh, just, you know, you have to you have to unpack from, from where you're living in your apartment, and then you have to find another place to live in Sacramento, and uh, there's just so much that goes on, especially if you had a car. Like, I had my car in Richmond. Um, but, you know, the, Gi- the Giants have been great with, um, with, with travel, you know. Even when I got traded last year, you know, they gave me the opportunity on whatever was easier for me. And uh, they've been great with that. And it's, it's honestly made, made moving so much less stressful. And uh, they ga- actually gave me the opportunity to go back to Richmond if I wanted to pack up all my stuff. And that was perfect because I wasn't going to start for the next couple of days. And I was able to go home and pack the stuff I really needed and uh, pack up my car. And my dad actually came back with me from when I came to D.C. And he was able to drive my car home, which which worked out perfect. And that wouldn't have happened if the Giants wanted me to go straight to sack, you know. So um, I definitely credit them for uh, for making this as least uh, stressful as possible. Yeah. And when you did go home to pack, uh, what was the first thing that you made sure was in your bag to go to Sacramento or go to the West Coast? (laughs) Well, actually, the first bag I packed was my baseball stuff, you know, and uh, I mean, I got to make sure that I have all that because if I don't have that, then I mean, that's what I'm going there to do is play (laughs) baseball. So that's that that's the first priority bag was uh, make sure everything fits in that bag and make sure it's it's under 50 pounds. And uh, and then when I went home. I just started packing the clothes that I, that I needed. Yeah, so you talked about the Futures game. Let's get into your experience a little bit there. Um, I, I was at the game. I got to see you pitch. You know, you came in the seventh inning. You're going up against Leotti Tavares, Fernando Tatis Jr., Eusniel Diaz, Elliot Ramos. Uh, you know, obviously it's a, it's a prospect-packed event. Uh, but what was it like coming in in that atmosphere, coming up against that lineup specifically, and uh, just kind of describe your, your one inning on the mound there when you did take the mound in Washington? Yeah, honestly, the six innings that I was watching the game, I was, I was itching to pitch. You know, I, I wasn't even sitting. I had to pace around the bullpen, and, uh, I mean, I, I was pumped to get in. And just seeing the lineup and kind of watching the guys going to pitch from the bullpen and seeing who they have to face, I mean, the competition speaks for itself. I mean, the amount of talent that was on that field is, is really incredible. And then uh, when it's finally my time to pitch, you know, I, I ran out there and and it seemed like the inning went by so fast. You know, the uh, just the excitement and uh, all the fans that were there. And I mean, the first two outs went by so quick. I was like, oh, my gosh, I can get one more. And I mean, the inning's over already. <laughs> and uh, I guess the inning uh, kind of got extended a little bit. Which, <laughs> I mean, it is what it is. But um, yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, it was it was it was so nice being able to to kind of face those guys and even have the defense I had behind me. And uh, even after that seventh inning, when I came in the dugout, like the amount of just love for baseball that was in that dugout and everyone was pulling for themselves, even though we played against each other throughout the year. um, And it was competition at that point, you know, it was as if we were teammates for, for three years, five years, you know, and uh, 
and everyone was was all hyped for each other and everyone was backing up each other and giving each other hugs it was it was an incredible kind of just atmosphere to be in and we should give a little a bit of background just so people who are listening know uh, you're probably not going to want me to do this but you, when you say it got extended a little bit it's because Yusniel Diaz gave a hit a home run to, to center field off you um, but what what is your kind of approach in a game like this where you know you only have one inning uh, you know you have a history of relief going back to your time in college and we'll get into that later but uh, you know when you are on a big stage like this it's being shown on national television you're getting a, a chance to show Giants fans baseball fans in general uh, what kind of pitcher you are? How do you approach, you know, when you you are just fa- facing a handful of batters at a time? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it's a, it's you're facing a handful of batters with a ton of experience, and uh, it's not like the game actually truly means stuff for for winning and losing. But uh, I mean, regardless, every time you take the mound, you want to win. You want to beat the guy that's in the box. So you, you you don't really you can't back down, regardless of what kind of the game is. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think going in, I knew I knew everyone's geared for fastballs. I mean, no one wants to miss miss the fastball, especially guys coming out throwing 98, 100, 96, and uh, they don't want to miss the fastball. And you can kind of tell by some of the swings they were taking on off speed. But um, I wasn't going to come in and throw all off speed, you know. And I kind of I kind of want to show the fastball that I have. And uh, um, yeah, Yasiel Diaz got me on one of them. But I mean, that's just how the game works. And uh, should have been located a little better but you know you just kind of go there and attack the hitters throw strikes um and just kind of let your defense play because i mean they're pretty good too right yeah and you got to experience a little bit of that with buddy reed making a really nice snag uh, your, your former florida guy as well uh but you went up against elliot ramos uh, a giants prospect himself uh, what is it like going up against somebody who could potentially be your teammate one day? And, you know, he singled up the middle off you. Have you given him any crap for like, hey, what was that about? We're supposed to be on the same side here. <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to face him. I, I wanted to get the opportunity to face him. I thought that'd be a cool uh, giant on giant uh, matchup that we had. And there you uh, go. yeah, I threw him, I threw him a good um, cut fastball inside that he took. And I thought, I thought the two seam right off that would would either weak contact or broken bat or something, but it just kind of stayed straight and he put a good swing on it like he should. And uh, I mean, he beat me. That's just how it is. But uh, I haven't given him crap yet. I don't. I don't really. Uh, I've met him once in spring training, and uh, I mean, I know how hard he works, and I know uh, I know he's a good dude. So I'm sure next time we catch up, I'll give him I'll give him a little bit of crap for it. But uh, you know, I mean, it was cool. It was fun. John, let's talk about your road to get to this point. A third-round draft selection of the Red Sox in 2016, traded in 2017 uh, to the Giants, and now you climb that ladder so quickly and go from being a guy who, you know, this time two years ago you're just getting your feet wet in pro ball, now you're a step below the major leagues. But I want to go back a little bit further than that. Back in 2013, you were the last selection in the Major League Baseball first-year player draft coming out of high school by the Washington Nationals. The first line in your MLB pipeline bio points it out, which I'm sure you're never – annoyed with hearing but the 1216th overall pick you forgo signing you go to florida and you bump your stock 37 rounds to the third round what changed most about you from the time that you were picked coming out of high school to going to florida being part of that insanely talented group there and then being taken in the third round by the red sox three years later (laughs) wow that's a lot but uh (laughs) um honestly I, i think experience you know i mean when i was playing in high school 
I mean, I thought I was good. I thought I thought I did pretty well against the competition that we were facing, and uh, I got the opportunity to go to the University of Florida, and it was a whole different perspective. I mean, you play people around the United States, and you come to realize how much talent is really out there. And uh, playing in the SEC, um, I mean, you get hit around a little bit, and you have to learn how to pitch, you know, and you have to you have to ask questions, and you have to learn how to take care of your body, and just all that maturity that goes into it is really something you learn when you go to college. Um, and definitely that's something I learned my, my, my past three years when I was at Florida. That group, um, I mean, the amount of talent that you were around in your time at Florida, uh, we talk with some of the big-time program guys about what exactly it takes to be successful in a program like that, but you didn't even start when you were at Florida, and a lot of that is probably due in large part to the depth that they had. Uh, being a reliever in college and then converting to being a starter at the professional level, we hear that go in the opposite way so often with starters who move into the bullpen, but what was the biggest adjustment for you getting into pro ball and turning yourself into a starter after having been primarily a reliever in college? Yeah, I, I really wanted to be a starter. I was a starter in high school, um, and I wanted to start when I got to the University of Florida. But like you said, the depth we had with Logan Shore, Alex Fayetto, A.J. Puck, Dane Dunning, um, there wasn't much room room to be a starter. Um, so uh, when, there was a, when there was an opening in the bullpen as a closer, I mean, I, I jumped on that and wanted to be the best closer I could be. You know, I wanted to pitch, and I wanted to, I wanted to throw in the SEC games. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, just like you said, that's, it's it's a it's a big transition. I was able to start in the summer leagues when I went and played, but uh, ultimately when I got drafted, I, I wanted to be a starter. And uh, if they were going to draft me, I wanted to be a starter. And the Red Sox respected that, and the Red Sox picked me up. Um, and I think honestly, the biggest thing that that I've taken away from it was uh, the mentality. You know, the mentality as a reliever, as a closer, uh, you're coming in with runners on, and it's a close game. And uh, I take that into starting, and I, I count, almost treat every inning as if it's the ninth inning, you know. And uh, I mean, you want to attack hitters, you want to get ahead, and you want to get as least runners on as possible. Yeah, and when you were going through a reliever, you talked about the mentality there. But what about your arsenal? Uh, usually, closers are kind of, you know, if you're Marion Rivera and you have one really good pitch, they're one pitch guys, or sometimes they're two pitch guys. You, you're somebody who, who works with a. Pr- pretty well fleshed out four pitch arsenal right now uh what was your approach to you know mixing pitches when you were a closer and how do you feel like that kind of either helped or you know made it more of a transition when you were going back to starting well when i was when i was a reliever in college i was mainly fastball slider um i would throw an occasional curveball but it wasn't my go-to and i i maybe threw one change up all all year junior year and uh mainly fastball slider um, I relied heavily on my slider, and uh, when I went into pro ball, I, I knew I needed to develop my changeup and my curveball a little bit more. And um, I honestly didn't really start throwing a decent changeup or a good changeup until this year. You know, it's something I really, really wanted to focus on coming into this year was developing my changeup, and it's been such a huge pitch for me this year. And working with Glenn Dishman, our pitching coach in Richmond, just when to throw the right, when to throw the changeup in the right counts, and kind of where to start the change up to get the swing and misses and to get the ground balls you needed to um but just learning how to pitch with with uh with other pitches besides fastball slider that's that's been really my development coming in as a starter and being able to face the lineup two or three times um having that change up really helped yeah and, and you know tyler brought up you going through the trade last year um you know we talked 
to you about this earlier too, in terms of the stuff that happens behind the scenes and, and moving and all that kind of stuff. Um, but for somebody, you know, who went through a trade last year and was on the other side of it, you know, you get traded for a major leaguer and Eduardo Nunez and everybody focuses on the major league side, but you're somebody who went through it on the minor league side. What kind of advice would you give to somebody who is, you know, a minor leaguer who gets traded or somebody who's looking to see, you know, what that is like, uh, uh, from you know the lower levels when it when you are switching organizations you know what is that transition like to a new organization to a new philosophy maybe and just physically you know what was it like switching teams completely I would say trust the process I mean you hear that everywhere um, but that's something that I went through when when I got traded I trust the process and I realized that God had a plan for me and he wanted me to to fly out to California the next day you know and it, it came out of nowhere the trade I got a call at around midnight. Uh, when we were in Wil- Wilmington, I got a call from our head coach and said, there's no easy way to say this, but you got traded uh, to the San Francisco Giants. I don't really have much information, but someone will call you. And I had no idea that I was even on the on the board to get traded. You know, I, had, I was having a decent year. And, uh, I mean, I was just enjoying every game playing, playing with the Salem Red Sox. And the fact that I got traded is just – you don't really know what to think because you have so many friends and, you know, you – you try to win every single game for your club and uh, getting traded. You got to go to another club and try to win every single game. But, you know, the, again, the Giants made it easy for me. They allowed me to uh, pack up all my stuff and fly out a couple of days later. And, uh, um, I mean, the most most advice I would say is just trust the process because, I mean, it's been a most un- unbelievable experience for me, and I couldn't be more happy from for what organization I'm playing for right now. John, being at that level now for the first time at AAA, you're going to get tested against so many different types of talents, uh, guys who already have major league experience, some guys who are kind of finishing school on the way to the major leagues, all that type of stuff. What are you most excited about seeing in AAA and being able to test yourself against versus what you saw in AA? I'm, I'm honestly just going into it looking at it, it's still baseball. You know, I'm still 60 feet away. And, uh, you know, as cliche as that sounds, that it's just baseball, I mean, the hitters are still hitters, you know, and and there's still weaknesses and there's still strengths. And I'm honestly looking forward to to playing with this AAA ball club and uh, seeing the different stadiums, um, facing competition that are ex-major leaguers and uh, are potentially future major leaguers. You know, the competition is going to be better, but um, I'm looking forward to just help helping Sacramento um, get on a roll and win a couple games. And do everything I mean, you I can to help to- that. You have to learn how to, like, talk trash about Fresno, especially because you jump, like, right into that rivalry. That's, like, the first thing that they teach you as a river cat, I think. Oh, it's a, it's a big rivalry here? I didn't yeah. Know I mean, they, Tyler they wants it to be a thing. It doesn't have to be a thing. It you is don't a have thing. to They're hate always talking enough. bad about each other on Twitter. Come on, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that, and you that's have to the eat thing. I get my op- if that's the thing, I have uh, I have my opportunity tomorrow to kind of give the River Cats a little edge. So I'm going to do the best I can to help that out. There you go. John Anderson of the San Francisco Giants. You can find Sean on Twitter. He's at Sean, S-H-A-U-N, Anderson 37. And uh, now you can find him with the Sacramento River Cats as well in the AAA Pacific Coast League. And, uh, Sean, thanks so much for the time, man. Congratulations on all the success so far this season. And best of luck in the PCL. Enjoy it. Awesome. Thank you for having me. On the road is Benjamin Hill. We find him in Charlotte, North Carolina this week as the Charlotte Knights will play host to one Benjamin Hill this evening and in a swanky hotel from what we understand. Hello, Ben. Yeah. 
hello, Tyler. Hello, Sam. Neither of you are sitting to my left or right. <laughs> I am all alone. Um, yeah, and what turned out to be a pretty swanky hotel. I booked it on Hotels.com, and I'm here on the 17th floor, and there's a rooftop bar on the 18th floor I haven't Man. been to. Maybe, maybe tonight after the game, uh, I'll be living the high life on a, you know, sipping a fine cocktail on a, on a rooftop bar. You know, that's how I live on the road, basically. Does it um, have a yeah. view of the ballpark? We know about the ballpark view in Charlotte. Can you see the ballpark from the hotel, from the rooftop bar, maybe? Probably from the rooftop bar. My hotel or my room looks in the other direction. Okay. Uh, I can tell you right now I see uh, a very busy road that I should know what it is because I drove in on it, but I forget. <laughs> And there's a Target and a BJ's and a bunch of uh, big buildings. It's not, you know, I'm looking away from the city is what I'm trying to tell you. Okay, that makes sense. So, well, uh, it's not Ben's, very exciting. Ben is trekking through the hotbed of minor league baseball that is the southeast already through Florida and one stop in uh, technically South Carolina now. The Augusta Green Jackets play in North Augusta, which is in South Carolina, and now in Charlotte halfway through this trip. Uh, but give us a rundown of what it's been like. You've got a chance to stop in Jacksonville and Kissimmee and Daytona um, and now through Augusta and into Charlotte, into the Carolinas. What have the first uh, four stops been like on this trip with Charlotte coming up tonight? Yeah, I mean, per usual, it's been a whirlwind, and it's kind of hard for me to believe what day is it? It's Wednesday. I've only been gone for about five days because these days on the road are like, they last a long time, man. But I started, uh, yes, in with the Florida Fire Frog in Kissimmee. Um, you know, I'd never been there before. It was one of four ballparks uh, I'd yet to go to, active ballparks. And um, Osceola County Stadium, former Houston Astros spring training complex, uh, the Florida Fire Frogs are the team that used to be the Brevard County Manatees. Um and I really enjoyed it there. You know, you guys know, and I'm sure a lot of listeners know, some don't, but the Florida State League is a really tough league to operate in, uh, really hard to draw fans. You know, it's hot, it rains a lot, um, kind of got a, you know, touristy population in a lot of cases, a lot of other entertainment options. So if you look at my blog post from the Florida Fire Frogs and read stuff that I'll do in the coming days and weeks, you know, you're not going to see a packed ballpark, but I really like the staff there, um, you know, for not succumbing to the Florida State League inertia and just really going for it so i was there on a friday you know they had bark in the park they were wearing uh latin heritage jerseys uh you know coqui coqui frogs which is what the florida fire frog references in the first place a type of frog um you know pretty common in puerto rico uh and they also had free beer friday they usually do it on thursdays but they'd had a rain out or something like that so they do the first ever free beer friday so it was free cups of pbr until the opposing team scored, and that lasted Man. through the first three innings and, until the Marauders scored in the fourth. Um, so, you know, they're really going all out. And then they wore Beatles-themed jerseys the next night, and um, you know, I, I really respect it because it's a very hard market to operate in or league to operate in, and they are not just saying giving up and throwing open the door to 100 retirees. Uh, they're really trying to engage with the community. So if you're ever down that way, don't get you know sucked into the allure of Disney World and whatnot. Go see a Florida Fire Frogs game. That's uh, that's, that's my advice. Um, so that was cool. And then up to Daytona, uh, another Florida State League team, um, and uh, definitely anomaly in the Florida State League, and that they're the only team that plays in their own ballpark, Jackie Robinson Ballpark, ballpark with a lot of history. 
Um, you know, every other team in that league plays in a spring training facility of some kind. So Daytona has their own unique thing going on. And I was there for big Shelbowski night, a big, Le- big Lebowski promotion. So that was a lot of fun, uh, participate in the pregame lawn bowling tournament, you know, referencing big Lebowski and, uh, you know, bowling and how common that was in the movie. Uh, of course, white Russian drink specials, um, Got to participate in a between-inning contest, uh, a ball-cleaning contest, like Jesus from the film, or Jesus <laughs> cleans his uh, bowling ball. You know, so a little, little edgy, that contest, having to clean those balls. Um, but a lot of fun there. One hitch was that the Big Shelbowski bobblehead did not uh, arrive in time. It got held up in customs, so fans had to get a voucher instead of getting a uh, pretty cool bobblehead, which featured the dude with a turtle shell on his back. You know, it's the Daytona Tortugas, they're a turtle team, they're you know, paying tribute to the Big Lebowski, so why not uh, have the dude with the turtle shell on his back? It's minor league baseball. Uh, but Jackie Robinson Ballpark is really one of my favorite ballparks in the minor leagues, and again, if you're ever near that way, I uh, highly recommend getting to go to a game there. And it's called Jackie Robinson Ballpark because that's where Jackie Robinson played spring training uh, in 1946 uh, prior to his first season in uh, – in, um, you know, in which he integrated, you know, the International League, uh, along with a couple other players with the Montreal Royals. Anyway, from there to Jacksonville, another big promotion. Unfortunately, a two-and-a-half-hour rain delay, but they got everything in, and uh, it was uh, Jumbo Shrimp did Words with Fans Night, a celebration of the 70th anniversary of Scrabble. So they wore Scrabble-themed jerseys, and they had uh, North American Scrabble champion Will Anderson in attendance. Uh, who threw out a first pitch but also took on 30 people in a Scrabble game at once uh, on the concourse. So I got to interview Will, talk to him about Scrabble, and I got a story on that promotion coming up uh, on Thursday, the same day that this podcast drops. Uh, So it it was great to be in Jacksonville. And also the last time I was in Jacksonville was 2015, the last year where Pedro Bragan had owned the team. You know, his family had owned the team for decades. Uh, So now it's uh, the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp, new ownership, Ken Babby. Uh, totally different culture there, so it was kind of interesting to see how much it changed within that ballpark in just a few short years. Uh, and then went to Augusta, and uh, as you mentioned, Tyler, uh, it is not in they, the Augusta Green Jackets do not play in Georgia anymore. Their new ballpark is across the Savannah River in South Carolina, so it's North Augusta, South Carolina, SRP Park, the only new ballpark opening in minor league baseball this year. And, um, you know, like a lot of new ballparks, you know, it's, it's still a work in progress. It opened in time, which is great. And minor league baseball hasn't had the best track record in recent years with parks opening on time. So it's great to see that it opened and, uh, you know, real nice facility, obviously. Um, and there's a lot developing around it in terms of hotels and, you know, the, the quintessential live, work, play sort of areas. And the parking garages are far enough away from the ballpark where you literally get picked up by team employees and driven to the ballpark in a golf cart which is a necessity, but then it also kind of ties into Augusta and the Masters and uh, the role golf plays. So, you know, it all kind of makes sense uh, rolling up to the ballpark in a, uh, <laughs> in a golf cart. And uh, here I am in uh, Charlotte, going to see the Knights tonight and earlier today. You know, I'm raising money for vers- versus cancer this year. And earlier today I went to the Levine Children's Hospital and got to do an interview there and get a tour of the facility. Beautiful place. Uh, real honor to be a part of that. And, uh, yeah, going to see the Knights shortly and getting that uh, spectacular view of downtown Charlotte from BB&T Ballpark. 
And uh, kind of take us through that that trip a little bit more to Augusta. Um, you know, you've seen some of the other newer parks like Hartford and El Paso of recent years. How does this kind of compare uh, that SRP Park to some of the other newer ones you've seen in the last five years or so? Uh, it doesn't jump out as much as maybe a Hartford or a Pas- El Paso in terms of the surrounding area. Um, but, you know, it's very much in line with everything you'd expect from a new minor league ballpark. You know, it goes without saying, but, um, you know, wide open, 360-degree concourse, lots of group areas. There's going to be a barbecue place uh, slash brewery opening in the right, in right field pretty soon, um, you know, which will, I think, add a lot to it. Um, you know, one thing that new ballparks have or are starting to have, and we're going to see a lot more of it, and SRP Park has this, is LED lights, which literally like flick on and off at the flick of a switch, as opposed to the typical, you know, firing up the lights and needing a lot of time for them to come on. And you can also, you can synchronize these lights. Uh, like if a player on the home team hits a home run, you can synchronize them and do a little light show as he rounds the bases, which is a pretty cool thing. Uh, so there's, I wish I'd been there for a night game when I was there Monday night, it got rained out. Um, but I think the lights are going to be a big part of that ballpark in terms of the fan experience. And there's also a lot of, uh, cool multicolored lights, um, you know, rimming the perimeter of the ballpark, um, that just kind of, that add to the character there. So, but as I said before, it's kind of a work in progress. There's not a lot of signage up there or, you know, things referencing Augusta's baseball history, um, you know, things within the ballpark, like the brewery barbecue need to open still. Um, so I think we'll more fleshed out operation within, you know, next year, certainly. And within the next couple of years, uh, I think it will be really when it comes into its own. Ben, with Charlotte on deck, uh, we've heard so much about Charlotte in reference to, you know, potential major league expansion. Charlotte comes up a lot, um, which always, for those of us on the minor league side, always seems bizarre because they built this ballpark, which is instantly was one of the classics, the instant classics in the cornerstone gem ballparks in minor league baseball. Um, that team is kind of one of the real turnaround stories because before they moved into that ballpark in downtown Charlotte, they were actually located similarly to Augusta. They were across the state line in South Carolina, but they've turned themselves into a, a real gem of a franchise now, due in large part to BB&T Ballpark in downtown Charlotte. Um, what's the feel that you get there, especially now that ballpark is established, that team has been there for a few seasons. They're really part of the fabric of that community in Charlotte now, and it's kind of strange for us as, as people on the minor league side to hear, oh, Charlotte's a team that could be primed for a major league team eventually someday because that ballpark right now i mean they've really they're a staple now in triple a and of the minor league landscape that way yeah i mean it's a cliche but it's true i mean if you want to succeed uh you know if you not if you want to succeed but a big part of a minor league team success is you know being in the downtown and being able to draw on the surrounding energy and also serving a catalyst for new things to pop up around you so you know when the charlotte knights played in south carolina even though it was a big market they didn't really draw very well and now like as you said very much just a big part of the city landscape and they're drawing all sorts of fans who love to come downtown you know younger crowds people who might not be baseball fans but who just want to go there to socialize you know have excellent views good drink specials everything that you know minor league baseball offers and it's funny when that ballpark was built um you know, there's always a lot of contentious back and forth and building a ballpark. And I can't remember his name, but there was a local businessman who kept suing the Knights to stop the project. And I forget the legal rationale, but one of his main arguments was that you build this ballpark and then it's going to be that much harder to build a major league facility because Charlotte is a major league town. Um, 
I forget the specifics of that, but that was literally one of the arguments against building it. Um, so now with this ballpark and the Knights, um, you know, it is such a integral part of Charlotte right now and Charlotte's landscape and Charlotte's, uh, you know, being one of its biggest entertainment destinations. So if Charlotte ever became a major league park, it would be strange to say, what are we going to do with this uh, top-notch AAA facility? But obviously that's a debate for, you know, later down the road, if and when it gets that far. And uh, just to go back to D- Daytona as well, I was going through your Twitter feed b- before, and always when you go on these trips, you always find the characters, I feel like, uh, pretty easily, much more easily than I would uh, when I go to a ballpark. And, and one stood out to me was uh, the Dixter in Daytona. The Dixter. The yeah. Dixter, yeah, who calls himself, I'm the mayor of this ballpark. You can ask anybody. And the, the photograph to go with it is hilarious with that quote. Um, but what could you tell us about, like, some of the characters along with the Dixter you've kind of met through your time in South Carolina, Florida, and now North Carolina? Yeah, not too many. Um, you know, when I was in, with the Florida Fire Frogs, I met a woman named Lisa. And uh, she was in the teen store during, like, a pregame autograph signing. And... Um, you know, I forget the players' um, full names, but she actually had signs for every single player in the uh, on the team, like like really well-made signs. Like you know, they looked to me like professionally printed signs. So I got her posing with these players in the team store who were signing autographs, holding up the sign she has with their names. And one was Jared, and one was Brandon. So she goes to the game with literally the entire roster. Of you know, with signs for every single player and holds up individually signs for every single uh, player. Uh, you know, I kind of wish I'd talked to her further and maybe gotten a story about her. Uh, kind of same with the Dixter. I met him in the ninth inning and the game ended almost immediately and it was kind of a chaotic scene and I didn't get to talk to him too much. So what you see in that tweet is unfortunately about all I have with the Dixter. But ballparks like Daytona really do bring out the, that old school fan base uh, because they've been a team for so long. It's an old ballpark, a ton of history. And, uh, uh, you know, to meet a guy like the Dixter, who knows how old he is, but you know that guy's been around. Uh, he's seen some things, and uh, there were eight seats. This is down the third baseline that said the Dixter, so he owns eight seats. Um, but there's only one Dixter. Been on the road, uh, continuing this trip after this swing through uh, Charlotte. Asheville's on the docket. Johnson City's on the docket. What else is coming up on this trip? Yeah, tomorrow night I'll be in Asheville. They're playing as the Hippies. And uh, that alternate identity started because the Greenville Drive, I guess, insulted them and called them the Asheville Hippies. And then Asheville was like, <laughs> you know, yeah, you're right, we're the Hippies. Uh, so they're going to play as the Hippies, kind of tie-dye uniform. Um, it's Thirsty Thursday. And uh, I learned this last time I was in Asheville and wrote a story about it. So unfortunately, I can't write another story about it. But Asheville actually was the first team to do Thirsty Thursday and trademarks the term Thirsty Thursday. They allow other affiliated minor league teams to use it, but one of the reasons you probably won't see it outside of minor league baseball, or if you do, it might not last very long, is because it's a trademark term, and uh, you're so you're technically legally not allowed to have Thirsty Thursday unless you're an affiliated minor league baseball team, and that's because Asheville Tours own the trademark. So I'll be... In Nashville tomorrow, they're going to be the hippies, and uh, it's the home of the original Thirsty Thursday. So we'll see what uh, comes about there. Then uh, going to Johnson City, you know, I went to the Yappy League uh, two years ago and did every single team, and uh, Johnson City was where I stayed for the first five nights of the trip. 
and yet I got rained out. So once I got to this area again, I was like, oh, if I can fit Johnson City in the schedule, I'll give them a chance at rain out redemption. So looking forward to that. And then going back to Bristol, you know, baseball as it was meant to be in its purest form, a ballpark that looks almost like an American Legion field, no full-time employees, but really excited to see that again. And one of the reasons I extended the trip to go to Bristol on Saturday is that Dale Murphy will be in attendance. So I'll get to interview him, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, he's a special guest. And also the uh, governor of Virginia will be in town. Uh, he's throwing out the first pitch at all nine Virginia minor league teams this season. And so hopefully I can interview him as well about his minor league travels and we can, you know, com- com- can compare notes on minor league ballparks and uh, public policy as well. Benjamin Hill is on Twitter. He is at Ben's Biz. You can check out the blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com, which has all the updates on the stops along this trip and all the rest of them. And uh, Ben, travel safe, man. Enjoy it. Thanks, guys. Uh, I will have the best time I possibly can. And uh, next week when I talk to you, I'll be back in the office like like this was all a dream. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Thanks, guys. Big thanks again to the seventh-ranked prospect in the San Francisco Giants organization, Sean Anderson, a couple of segments ago, who you can follow on Twitter at Sean Anderson, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, Anderson37, and uh, Benjamin Hill as well, who is on the road in Charlotte today. MILB.TV will get you set for all the postseason races across the minor leagues, and uh, we got our eyes on some stuff this weekend. Sam, what are you watching? Yeah, so I've got my eye. Uh, you'll have to get to this game quickly if you're listening to this on Thursday when we do put this up. Uh, Michael Kopech will be taking the mound for the Charlotte Knights. Uh, that's one night after Ben Hill will be there, so I can't tell you to look for Ben Hill in the stands. But uh, that's interesting because Kopech is coming off an 11 strikeout outing last time out at Durham July 14th. Uh, only one, walked one batter. That's really good for him this year. He's walked 57 batters in 88 at third innings. So control has been a real issue for him at AAA. Uh, really seemed to settle down that last time out against the Bulls. Can he kind of carry that into this start? That will be big. Also, uh, Aloy Jimenez, uh, who I feel like we talk about week in, week out. He's now healthy. He's back with Charlotte. I think he homered just the other night. Uh, he's starting to get back into the swing of things. Um, so that's, you know, those are the two best prospects in the White Sox system, really. And the fact that they will be taking the same field just one stop away from, you know, from moving to the south side will be really fun to see. So if you get a chance and you're listening to this on Thursday, uh, find your way to MILB.TV, watch the Charlotte Knights take on the Pawtucket Red Sox uh, at 7 o'clock Eastern. What do you got, Tyler? The man is back in the Eastern League. Vlad Guerrero Jr. has been reinstated to the AA New Hampshire Fishercats. We kind of initially heard that Vlad, when he was back from his injury, would go straight up to AAA Buffalo, but he is going to be back with AA New Hampshire. They are at home taking on the Harrisburg Senators this weekend from Thursday through Sunday. And so Vlad, as it looks right now, will be back in the lineup for New Hampshire against Harrisburg this weekend. Um, That's got to be really annoying if you're Harrisburg. Like, oh, well, congratulations. You get to be the first team to see Vlad when he comes back. Yeah. Oh, it's so nice to see you. Oh, you're so looking healthy. Great, great yeah. to have you back mm. here. That's fantastic. Which, which knee was it again? The left one? Hmm. 
So that's please, exciting. Please don't actually hurt Vlad. I yeah, don't mean no, to make it sound like that. We don't, we don't ever want to see Vlad hurt again. Uh, but Vlad, I would think if Vlad gets off to another scorching tear at AA, he's probably not long for New Hampshire. So if you're right, well, there was that story, yeah, a couple of weeks ago that came out that he was going to be moving to Buffalo yeah. when he got fully right, healthy. Got so yeah. yeah, so he was in the GCL for a bit. He he moved to Dunedin, I think, for a game. Yeah, uh, and now he's going to be back with New Hampshire. So maybe this this won't be long at all. It's really just moving up the the ladder making his way slowly north yeah and then he'll be in buffalo by the end of the month i wouldn't be surprised by that very well be but if you are uh, a fisher cats fan a blue jays fan or uh, just somebody who wants to watch a dude crush at the plate vlad guerrero jr will be back on milb.tv this weekend and that'll do it for the 169th episode of the show before the show podcast our biggest thanks again to sean anderson to benjamin hill and to you for tuning in he's sam dykstra i'm tyler mom we'll talk to you next week Thank you.